0: B? The most valuable
1: business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in envelopes an APY. APY can change at any time.
2: So, did you hear the one about the academic who walks into a climate change lecture? Wait, 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 wait! Don't leave. Just hear me out. This one really happened. A paper is read. Opinions are shared. And it's all pretty dire stuff. At the end, a young woman stands up in front of her peers and says, we humans won't be missed. And the audience roars with laughter. Maybe you were expecting something different. Maybe some hand-wringing, maybe sadness. Basically, despair. I mean, given the state of the world, Despair would make sense. But human beings are complicated and the way we respond to our own mortality, how we create meaning and acknowledge loss, how we find hope. It's just not straightforward. It might be humor. It might be grief. It might even be gratitude. So how can we live well and live with purpose in a world that's constantly on the brink I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Jonathan Lear. He's a philosopher at the University of Chicago and also a psychoanalyst who spent his entire career wrestling with the thorny ethical questions that emerge in human life. He shares that story about the climate change lecture in his most recent book, Imagining the End, Mourning and the Ethical Life. It's a book about living well in dark times, times like ours. It's about why gratitude and hopefulness is a better orientation than despair and cynicism. It's a book, frankly, that's hard to sum up, but I tried. It is very hard for me to sum up this book because it's about so much. If I had to, though, I'd say that it's about what it means to live well in a world that's deeply tragic. How would you sum it up?
1: Good work, is I, Is what I would
2: say. Okay, we're done here.
1: <laughs> we're done. It's been nice meeting you. Yeah, the book is a, has a basically, in the background, a, an Aristotelian concern with what is it for humans to live a happy, fulfilling, meaningful life— I think that was an excellent question he raised. He tried to answer it. I'm trying to deal with the same question and in his spirit, but in a more modern and contemporary context, which includes having to think about not only catastrophe and the end of the world, but our imaginative life in, with catastrophe. And the book, I think, circulates around that kind of problem. What would it be to live well? With the kind of imaginings we also have to live with about the end of life.
2: The pandemic hovers over the book. How could it not? I think it's clear all the ways the pandemic has upended our lives. I mean, obviously, millions of people have died, businesses have been lost, all of that. But what's interesting about what you're doing is this book is really more about the psychic cost of. A disaster like this it's about the psychic threat of a catastrophe on this scale you know it doesn't just destroy lives it destroys our sources of shared meaning it destroys our faith in society in some instances can you say a bit about that psychic toll and why this kind of loss can be so devastating even if it's not quite as easy to get our hands around if that makes sense
1: I mean, besides my work in philosophy, I think you know, Sean, that I trained as a psychoanalyst. Right. And one of the things that surprised me in my psychoanalytic work is that people would come in and they would have real problems, and the things they were talking about were true. But there was also a a kind of further question which I discovered, which is even if their problems are absolutely as they think they are, what imaginative life do they have around them and what kind of imaginative problems do they have or what kind of imaginative catastrophes are they suffering or what kind of imaginative possibilities might they have or grow? And I felt I was seeing something very similar to that in a a more social and cultural scale, which is we do face very real problems. And, you know, in the pandemic, and most of this book was written during the pandemic, we're living in the present with real problems and how to deal with them. But that there's this further question, which is given that we're living with real problems, how well or badly are we doing in our inner world and psychically and imaginatively with the very real challenges? It's a separate question, and a lot of the book is really about that. What are we doing, imaginatively speaking, with all the the various shared cultural challenges that we
2: face? Imagination is a a double-edged sword, isn't it? And You can imagine (laughs) your way into great bliss, or you can imagine your way into great suffering, depending on which direction you're inclined.
1: That's right. And not all of our imaginings are immediately up to us. Yeah, We may want to go in one direction, but we find ourselves taken in others. And I think this is a notion Freud had that I think is very, very important, which is the idea of psychic reality. Hmm. The idea of psychic reality is not just how things are internally, but we come up against something quite durable in ourselves. And we find that this is tough because this is coming up for me whether I like it or not.
2: The central question in the book really is something like how do we make sense of our individual purpose in life when the world around us is kind of falling apart. It's such a rich question and I think there is a tendency to associate despair or nihilism with an awareness of our fragility or our finitude, you know. I'm going to die and so will everything else. So what's the point of anything? But do you think that we should see it exactly the opposite way. That the realization that life is finite and that everything we hold dear can and will end is actually a reason to love it all the more. Does it actually make life more, not less purposeful? Does it actually bind us even closer to our fellow humans who share the same condition?
1: Well, if I had to say answer that question yes or no, I'd say yes. (laughs) But I guess what I think is from... The beginning of serious thinking about our human condition, there's a real appreciation of its finiteness. And then there's a question of, is there a way to live better or less well with that understanding of who we are and what our condition is? Now, that gets intensified, I think, when We're living in conditions of pandemic and conditions of, you know, we're worried about the social stability, the fabric of our social world, and now wars breaking out in various places. And I'm not saying in all times one should have one particular attitude, but rather it's too easy to think because the situation is this way, I have no choice but to feel that way about it, as opposed to a question of what is going on imaginatively not only with me, but within my culture. How are the newspapers imagining our futures? What does that do? And is there more freedom of choice? What I definitely think is right is that there are questions of can I handle these sorts of problems more or less well in terms of my imaginative encounters with how to face these problems.
2: There's a story you tell in the book, and I started the episode with it. You're attending a lecture on climate change, And the speaker is talking about the end of the age where humans rule the Earth. And there's a young woman who stands up at some point, and she says, We won't be missed. She's kind of saying, look, humans will pass away into nothingness, but the world will just keep humming along. No one will miss us. We're just a parasite anyway. That kind of attitude, I think... Is pretty common. Why did you single that out? What do you think is going on there? Is that an expression of grief or mourning or just ironic detachment or just a way of laughing in the face of like impending doom? Because what else can we do?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, as you know, I'm a psychoanalyst. So when she got up and said, We will not be missed. I wasn't surprised to hear somebody say that, but I was surprised a bit by all the laughter. Why? Well, that's it. What is the laughter doing? Uh, You know, what do jokes do for us and what does humor do for us? So one thing I thought is humor provides certain kind of mini catharsis. It's a mini relief of anxiety. And when we uh, say we will not be missed, in a funny way, we both do and do not include ourselves in those who will not be missed, that on the one hand, we're saying purportedly about all of us, but the ability to sort of judge that is also got in it an ability to sort of stand back from it all and take pleasure in, well, I think a number of things, but one, the pleasure of feeling superior idea that you yourself know what's going on, but also I think that there can be, I don't know, a tendency to sort of feel that even though you're saying we, somehow I escape. (laughs) And I use this example in the book of a preacher saying, you know, on a Sunday sermon saying, we are all such sinners. And somebody in the, almost like a Monty Python scene, somebody in the audience in one of the pews says, well, you know, Reverend, even you, (laughs) we're all sinners, but how about you, Reverend? And once the Reverend is put on the spot, he's got to say, yes, me too, me most of all, I'm a sinner. But I'm interested in that moment before the hand went up and he wasn't put on the spot. Was he sort of slipping away from including himself in the we, even though officially he is?
2: Yeah, when I was reading that, I actually was asking myself, would I have laughed too? And my initial thought was, I don't think so. But then probably if everyone around me was laughing, I probably just would have reflexively started laughing, you know. But then I remembered, there's that famous George Carlin bit where he's like, you know, everyone's always talking about saving the planet. We gotta save the planet. And like, no, 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 no.
0: There is nothing wrong with the planet. Nothing wrong with the planet. The planet is fine. The people are fucked. <laughs> Difference. The planet isn't going anywhere. We are. <laughs> We're going away.
2: And that's funny. And I don't know, maybe humor is on the other side of anger and despair where you can just laugh about your fate. I mean, there's a lot to be said about humor, which I'd
1: love to keep talking about. But let me just say one thing here, which is that if you find that comment, we will not be missed, funny. This is one thing I find very interesting from a psychoanalytic point of view. The way it comes out as funny is we're thinking, oh, well, we're just a greedy, thoughtless, insensitive species that doesn't care about the rest of the planet, it doesn't care about each other. Good riddance, you know, that we take the position of, in some sense, an imagination of the rest of the world and say, what have you done (laughs) other than make a mess here? But to succeed in enjoying that as a joke, you've got to have, at least in the moment, left out of account all of the truly special, remarkable, brilliant things that humans have done.
2: Bach, Mozart. But not just that, what we could still do, right? I guess maybe in some sense you could think of that kind of joke and the attitude it represents as a kind of almost like pre-mourning mm-hmm. for like <laughs> for the fate of our species, and, yeah. and maybe it is. But at the same time, that can lead pretty easily to something like resignation, yeah. where you know, there is still so much work being done. There is still so much work that could be done and To already think that way and to surrender to that or or kind of find refuge in that, psychologically, it may serve some kind of purpose, but it can also undermine any chance of changing things.
1: I agree. That's why I think it's a form of despair that doesn't recognize itself as such. I think that's exactly... Right. Because seriously, if we are the last generation, then we don't get another generation in the future to mourn us. The, we're the last mourners. <laughs> and are we going to mourn ourselves? Yeah. And to say we will not be missed as a joke is to say, well, no, we're not going to be the next the mourners of ourselves. We're going to dismiss this. And as you said, and that will justify if it's already too late, then there's nothing to do. And that's, I think, a bad way to approach the future, however bad
2: things are. Is there something different about the kind of despair one might feel when the thing you're despairing about is social disorder or social decay or political dysfunction, as opposed to the kind of despair or anxiety you might feel when you're dealing with an individual catastrophe or a private catastrophe, you know what I'm saying?
1: Well, I think with despair, this is a point I'm mean, just hugely indebted to Kierkegaard, who has thought really well in complicated, nuanced ways about despair. But one of the points about despair is that it can be an enormous relief to feel despair. I mean, you might not think it that way because you're despairing, but if you can think, well, the world's about to collapse, so there's nothing I can do except despair, in a way, it lets you off the hook. I mean, it, there's a way of thinking, you know, well, if the humans just all destroy themselves and it's over, then what am I to do? And I think despair, this is, I think, a point Kierkegaard makes. Despair can hide itself that you don't recognize that it is despair,
2: and Søren Kierkegaard, of course, was a 19th century Danish philosopher, theologian. Most people consider him the forefather of existentialism.
1: Yeah, you know, there's this fantasy that you're facing the truth, honestly. Mm. And, you know, maybe you are, but the thing you're not facing, I think, is the relief mm. that despair all, you know, purports to offer you, saying, like, I know how things are. And I think it's very hard to tolerate not knowing how things are or how things are going to be.
2: I'm glad you brought that up. There's a line in the book that I had marked. You write, Despair thrives when it is not fully conscious of what it is. It portrays itself as truthfulness, as the courage to face grim reality straight on, without the wishful illusions that keep us so complacent. It does not understand its own motivated fantasy structure. So it sounds like you're describing the sort of people who wear their despair as a badge of honor, like it's a reflection of their unwillingness to delude themselves. It's the annoying, relentlessly cynical guy we all know. And I think I've been that guy before, and I'm trying really hard not to be <laughs> anymore, but I digress. What is the fantasy structure you're talking about there? Like, what do you think is really motivating that attitude,
1: well, I think in general, there are more or less good ways of handling anxiety mm. and tolerating the anxious nature of the human condition, yeah. which is not knowing about the future. And so one of the things of, in terms of the motivated structure of despair is, you know, it purports to offer you a solution to that problem, which is, I know, I know it's, things are terrible and I'm the knowing one and I can face the truth. And I'm not saying they're not facing the truth. That's what's complicated. You know, they may be facing the truth, but the defensive structure of that, what is motivating this, is being left out. And that is a way of relieving yourself from the anxious not knowing. How do you tolerate not knowing? And I think it's like an attempt to tolerate that, but I don't think it's as good a strategy as others.
2: And isn't that the thing about catastrophes or disasters or whatever? One way to not be super-duper anxious is to not think too much about how perilous (laughs) everything really is. But then when it comes crashing down around you, you can't really take anything for granted in that sense. You're you're confronted with the fragility of of everything around you, and you have to look it in the face or make a real effort to bury your head in the sand. And so that sort of brings up these sorts of anxieties that, whereas maybe a normal life, you can keep them at bay.
1: I agree with that. And you asked about the individual. What was coming to mind as you were speaking is somebody, let's say like me, can say some platitude like, I know we're mortal and we could die at any moment. And then, you know, I get a heart attack in the middle of talking to you and I'm surprised (laughs) that the alleged knowingness of, like, I know we're mortal, et cetera, is precisely the thing that's used to keep me at a distance from understanding the genuine threat I have to tolerate every day.
2: Yeah. And I think it does seem like the world has always more or less been in a bad way and there's always been lots of things to despair over. But it does seem like we've gotten really good. At manufacturing hopelessness. You know, I'm guilty of this too, of being a little bit too close to the news, which skews toward the catastrophic. And I find myself being less depressed as I've restricted my news diet. But do you think that we do live in a world where it's very easy to have an exaggerated sense of how bad things really are and that that can actually lead to, you know, spirals of? despair or anxiety or depression or whatever.
1: Well again I think that there are these two currents going on. I think on the one hand it does seem to me an extraordinarily dangerous time and I'm not here to sing a song of optimism or that things are great. Yeah. But at the same time I think that there's a uh, in terms of currents cultural currents you're talking about it seems to me newspapers are out to sell their papers or you know get online subscriptions and they do that by there's an economic tendency towards feeding appetite around disaster and, you know, certainty about this is about to happen. And it seems to me both are true, that on the one hand, we do live in a very dangerous time, and it may also be that the news is contributing to the dangers, but it also, I think, contributes to kind of appetite for disaster news. Disaster news sells better than actually the hard work of showing what good things are happening in your neighborhood. And so it's not like we don't live in bad times. It's only we're making these stories up. I don't believe that at all. I think we do live in very dangerous times. But then the question is, how do you face that well and maybe do something about it? And in a funny way, we're distracting ourselves with the truth. (laughs) There are these true stories, but they're told in ways that are satisfying as I think you were suggesting, a kind of appetite for catastrophe.
2: Sure, the world has countless problems and catastrophes, but it's also full of beauty and goodness too. So is feeling despair a choice? That's coming up after a short break.
3: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com slash box do you think despair is a choice and not necessarily a choice to be sad but a choice to ignore all the goodness and beauty in the world of which there's always a ton I'm a bit skeptical
1: about choices, just in general. Mm, Why? It's a strategy we hit upon. It feels to me very, in a funny way, like Darwinian selection, that it's a strategy we hit upon, and then it does something useful for us. You know, it's not like I choose to spare, I don't think, but I hit upon it. I'm encouraged in it with various cultural forces that fit certain dispositions of mine, and it just sort of clicks and it starts to work, and I get in the habit of knowing how things are, are and going to be and thinking other people don't possibly understand how bad they are, et cetera. So it feels more like something gets selected, it works up to a point, but we could do better in terms of our flourishing as human beings.
2: Can I ask a strategy for what? So for example, if, you know, if you're someone who cares a lot, thinks a lot about the climate, and feels like we're sleepwalking into ecological catastrophe, and we're running out of time to do anything meaningful about it, perhaps we already ran out of time to do anything about it. Or if you're someone who thinks the foundations of our liberal democracy are just eroding, and a good percentage of the country seems to not care about that. And thinking about those things sends you into a kind of paralyzing just pessimism about the state of things. And that can lead to resignation or depression or whatever. And so, if you're in one of those situations, like what kind of strategy is despair, and is there a better yeah. strategy for living well in light of all that stuff? Well, just by
1: way of beginning to address your question, I, I think it helps to think about what happens to individuals and how they select strategies that they're not choosing. I mean, in the psychoanalytic context, you meet somebody who has a pattern of breaking up with the person they're going out with just when they think it might get serious. And you might say, well, why ever would people break up at just the moment they decide they might care for somebody? And you— find out they've got a strategy. This way, they're given a hundred percent guarantee their heart won't be broken by the other person. And so they sort of have guaranteed not being hurt by choosing a kind of invulnerability that's nuts. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's the very thing they would rather do if they weren't so threatened. They want a relationship, but they destroy it at the first step. Now, how do they do that? They didn't choose it. It's just at some point they happened upon, you know, a kind of strategy of like, I'm not going there, I'm going to stop this. And that sort of worked up to a point. It does work up to a point. They're not going to break up with you if you break up with them. But is that a good way to to live? No, it's not a way to have a happy life. Now, I think it, it helps to think about the individual because you can then think about how cultures can hit upon strategies, not by choosing them, but finding in various ways they work. And I think, you know, as we were talking earlier about the way our culture now delivers and consumes news, it has hit upon a strategy of it's a form of entertainment. It makes money for those who are selling it. It gratifies certain appetites for disaster, catastrophe, thinking very bad about the other side of the story, et cetera. In a funny way, nobody chose it, but it is serving certain societal cultural needs. But It's also at the very same time a manifestation of the culture as a whole failing to do the job it should do of promoting the well-being and real flourishing of our citizens. Now, what do you do about that? Obviously, it's very difficult, but what one hopes for is that there's a sufficient I don't know, plurality of attempts to deal with the problem. Again, you know, in the individual case, the impulse to break up too early may never go away, but can there be a kind of light that goes off and says, oh, here I go again, maybe I could do something different this time. And what I think about culture is you know through formation of talk shows like yours and other forms of media other forms of community organizing other forms of public discourse are there ways to offer different alternatives but it's slow i don't think there's a fast process here
2: yeah i don't think so either in the spirit of bringing this back to the individual level which i think makes it a little more actionable for anyone listening and thinking through these things and i'll start by asking you about this relationship between despair and mourning. And for listeners, I mean mourning as in grieving, not mourning as in coffee. Is mourning a response to despair? Is it an antidote? Is it kind of the same thing, or is it something else altogether? I I think it's different. (laughs) And I think that this is a central part of the book, a theme that runs
1: through the book, which is the very distinctively human way we suffer loss. And I think Freud, he had a classic essay called Mourning and Melancholia, where he sort of offered, in a funny way, I think, a choice between two different ways of being. But the idea of mourning is the idea of what is our fate as creatures who love. We enter the world, we get attached to people and things and ideas, but people in loving relations— and they, as well as we, are finite. And in the paradigm case, they die. (laughs) And what are we going to do about that? I think Freud really brought this out. Mourning is the sort of healthy, distinctively human way to face loss and grieve. And at the center of the mourning process, somebody we love dies, and our imaginations in mourning, our imaginations spring to life. I mean, we get busy imaginatively wondering what their life was about, what our life what together was about, who were they, why do we love them, how has this all mattered. And of course, the imagining can just broaden out to the meaning of life and our place in the world and the people we love. So the central key moments of mourning is our response to loss is in a way to create the loss. Instead of there being just a mere change in the world that, you know, one minute they were there, the next minute they're gone, the universe is going to keep changing its states. No, what just happened is important, it mattered, our hearts are full, and so are our imaginations. And that activity of imagination is the activity by which I think you might say a mere change in the universe gets converted into a genuine loss. It can be very sad, but that, I think, is part of our flourishing. It may sound ironic, but part of the flourishing of particularly human being is constituted by this kind of response to loss. And then just to generalize out just a moment, I think the second really important psychoanalytic thought is that once you see the paradigm case of mourning, which is the death of a loved one and how we respond, you can start to see mourning as actually a much more general, pervasive aspect of human life, that part of what it is for us to be, as Plato would call us, erotic creatures we are creatures who love, we love all sorts of aspects of the world that we make ourselves vulnerable to loss just by coming to understand the separateness and finiteness of the world in which we live, and all sorts of things, ideas, cultures. And that's part of, I think, what's at stake now is this tremendous fear of the possibility of loss of a familiar form of life. And I think the healthy response to that, very broadly construed, is mourning.
2: You say in the book that for psychologists, mourning is still a great riddle, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you've got a pretty good (laughs) <laughs> account of 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 what it is and why we do it, so what's the mystifying part of mourning for psychologists
1: well, g- good question I mean Freud you know he uses the phrase the psychologist' and he says it's a great riddle, and I think what he's interested in is. There are other forms of animal life, such that when one dies, the other just walks away. Or there are sexual relations between other forms of animal life, that there's the sex relation, they just they walk away. There's no evident form of attachment. And I do want to say the tremendous complexity of animal life and animals grieve in very sophisticated and complicated ways as well. But the point about it being a riddle is, with us, we don't walk away. And we mourn. And on the one hand, you could say, "Well, that's the answer to the question." We're the creatures who mourn. But I think what Freud is saying is, "Yeah, but there's something extraordinary about that fact, and that he wants to call a riddle that what looks like the answer to the question, it now opens up as a question: Why or what is mourning?" And I mean, in some sense, I think that we're getting to something very fundamental about the human condition that contains an enigmatic core at the center. of It's like, why do we do this? And what is it really? There's plenty to say about it, but nothing will stop the questioning if you keep asking
2: the question. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, <laughs> it kind of raises the question, yeah, why, why mourn at all? It seems like the easiest thing to do and maybe the most psychologically healthy thing to do would be to just suffer a loss and move on, to skip right over the whole (laughs) mourning process, or just outright deny these very difficult truths about our world that can send us into despair or anguish. That's true. But even saying that aloud feels like I'm overlooking some real deep function that mourning fulfills for Human beings.
1: Well, this is the thing. I think you've just named a strategy. You know, one strategy of responding to the death of a loved one is to just move away from it, move on, find somebody else, don't think about it. It's too much. But in terms of like, what does our flourishing as human beings consist in? That's a less good way. And the thing about mourning is, on the one hand, you might think, well, boy, if you could avoid that pain, wouldn't that be great? But on the other way of looking at it is, It is precisely in mourning that our, as I said, our imaginations get busy. And in our imaginations getting busy with what did this all mean? Why does it matter? Why do we matter? This is partly how I come to have an internal life in in some sense to come into being myself.
2: Can I stop you real quick for a second? Because I don't want to skip over this because I think you hit on something that I think will relate. You said, I'm paraphrasing, that we wouldn't flourish as much as we could or should if we just skipped over these things, or if we just moved on, if we didn't sit with these feelings that we have, say, when a loved one dies, in what sense do we become more human or flourish better when we do sit with these things, even though they're hard? How does sitting with them and, and, and not turning away and dealing with the pain and trying to make something constructive out of it, how does that help us flourish more as opposed to just turning around and skipping along? Well, yeah, good question.
1: The basic, I think, approach is to ask, well, what is it for us to flourish? What kind of creature are we such that this would be our flourishing? And the sort of basic outline of an answer is, one, do we ourselves have a rich, flourishing internal life, imaginative life? And two, are we both thoughtfully and emotionally connected to the world as it is. Can we live among people, loving them, disliking them, having serious connections, and also understanding how things are? That's very broad, but that's the general framework of what it is for us to flourish. And you know, whoever said, well, better never to have been born at all, <laughs> that's a different view. <laughs> yeah. And if you want some sort of living form of not having ever lived, yeah. that would be, for me, a mistake about what it is for us to flourish.
2: There's a very interesting bit in the book about what the philosopher Cora Diamond calls the difficulty of reality, where we just confront something in the world that we can't comprehend or it's too much for our mind to process. And in those moments, we don't really know what to do. And I suppose denialism is one coping mechanism, but that's not really sustainable. Mourning, at least, manages to be somehow both an act of acceptance and defiance. And maybe it's the best way for us to accept what we can't change, what already happened, in fact, and also show respect for the thing that we lost or the person we lost, if that makes sense,
1: yeah, it does. I mean, Cora Diamond is one of the philosophers you know I very much admire. I learn from her a lot, and she certainly helped me in thinking through this book. Yeah, she's great. And I think when she talks about the difficulty of reality, I think it's not just a psychological condition of finding it difficult, but it is an experience of thinking that our concepts of like death just aren't going to work. The experience is so awful that our concepts are just inadequate to the very task of thinking. And I think mourning is a response to that. And it is a, I don't know how to put it, but determination to keep going in imagination about what does this all mean? Yeah. And it's you might not solve the problem or might not really figure out to any satisfaction what it did mean, but the very act of mourning is the display, the manifestation of a commitment that I will try to make meaning here. I will try to understand what this meaning is rather than just sort of give up.
2: Coming up after one last quick break, is it possible to mourn the death of an idea? Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference.
2: think it's possible to mourn the death of an idea. Yes. How so?
1: Well, you got to. <laughs> you first have to love the idea. <laughs> you can't mourn it if you haven't fallen in love with it. Yeah. But if you have, and then you become disillusioned, there's a question of what you then do. Is it resignation? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Or is there mourning? And I mean, this is a little bit tangential, but I think it makes the point, which is, you know, the previous book I wrote, uh, A Radical Hope, was about how the Crow Indians, the Upsalika Nation, responded to, in some sense, the enforced death of their culture. And there's an idea that people fell in love with, the people who were living the Crow life. And I have very good Crow friends. And my closest Crow friends are precisely the people who I think are mourning that past life. And in their mourning, they are creating new forms of Going on as a crow that nobody, you know, back in 1890, no crow could have imagined what they're doing now. And yet, it is the mourning process of something that was lost that is, I think, the process of, you know, motivating a reinvigoration of new forms of living. So, yeah, I think mourning can be part of a very creative process of recreation. But to recreate, you have to acknowledge the loss.
2: Well, I can tell you what I had in mind here. You know, I'm coming to this discussion from a political perspective. My background is in political theory, so it's usually the lens through which I'm I'm thinking about these sorts of things. And part of what makes political arguments so intractable is that they're not just arguments about ideas or policies. They're arguments about values. They're arguments about social realities that are bound up with our identities in really complicated ways. And I think this is one reason why people don't want to let certain ideas go. And I guess maybe what I'm really asking is, do you think there's a political expression of mourning where people are nostalgic for the loss of a familiar world and the response to that sense of loss is to rebel against the world we actually have? I don't know if that's mourning. Maybe I'm overreaching a little bit here, but we think aloud on this program.
1: I think there's also a concept of refusing to mourn. That's another theme in the book of this choice between mourning and refusing to mourn. And there are different ways of responding to loss. And one of them is to insist that we haven't lost it. And it's very hard to move on in that case. And I think you know one of the chapters in the book is about Gettysburg, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and the aftermath of that in the Civil War. And what one saw, there was this terrible cycle of refusing, on the part of the U.S. government, refusing to bury the dead Confederate soldiers of Gettysburg. And that led to, ten years later, the exhumation of— in the recovery of as many dead Confederate bodies as they could find in Gettysburg, and moving them to the south, and mostly to this Hollywood cemetery in Virginia where a new cemetery was set up. But the setting up of the new cemetery was around an attempt to validate the so-called lost cause, which should have been given up. It should have been really lost. But that, I think, is an example of a refusal to mourn that is pretending, as it were, I mean, earnestly, seriously, sincerely pretending to be mourning. It's officially finding a grave to put these poor corpses in, but, you know, it's all done in the service of, in some sense, not moving on. And so mourning is, I think, the process of being able imaginatively to say, look, it's over, but how can I make this happen in a more creative way? you know i'd just say in terms of our country i mean this is a theme that's being talked about a lot but you have fundamental concepts of equality and freedom for all citizens that were articulated in the founding of our country by slaveholders yeah who somehow psychically they managed to do both now what do you do about that you know i think myself that the right attitude is not to just sort of give up on equality or freedom but to reinvent what we can now mean by equality and freedom. But that really requires you to say goodbye to a lot of stuff that is part of your tradition. I mean, again, I feel mourning is internal to what it is to have a tradition and what it is to be, again, essentially historical beings. What it is for us to have a past is very different from other ways one might tell a story about the past of other creatures. Ours is one where we have to keep saying goodbye to things that have mattered to be able to move on.
2: It would appear, I'm sure, for the first time in the history of the show, I think I had it exactly backwards, (laughs) where what I was calling political mourning is really a revolt against mourning. If mourning is a healthy response to loss, that kind of expression, collective expression, is a refusal to accept loss and fight like hell to retrieve what is already gone, or maybe never even existed in the first place, except as an idea. That's right. And I feel like that's where we are. That explains a lot about our politics at this moment, and maybe also explains why it feels so intractable. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me, again, ask about something that may be more hopeful, more optimistic, and that is gratitude, you talk about in the book as a kind of orientation, a way of being in the world, and not necessarily an activity or an emotion?
1: Well, I I think it has various levels. One is an emotion. When you do me a favor that just for my own sake and I recognize it and I can respond with gratitude, then it's an emotion. Then there's a way of being in the world, which is more like what Aristotle would think of as a human virtue or excellence, that I'm set up psychically so that I'm ready to appreciate that which one ought to be grateful for because it is a great
2: gift. Is that the answer? Is gratitude, in your view, the key to a happy, purposeful life?
1: Well, I always worry about the key, or you know, anything with a definite article makes me worry.
2: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: But what I do think is the capacity to experience gratitude towards that which one has a real reason to be grateful, that's good. <laughs> and can one find what there is in the world that really is something worth being grateful about. I was intrigued, there's a famous psychoanalyst after Freud named Melanie Klein, and she wrote this classic paper, I mean, within a very small world of psychoanalysts. Yeah. And it was called Envy and Gratitude. And she places these two human emotions or orientations to the world, the envious person, as a way of really being very unhappy and a very unpleasant, and dangerous person to be around. You don't want to really be around envious people.
2: That's not good. <laughs> In the book, you bring up Wittgenstein, a 20th century German philosopher. He's sort of known for pulling the rug out from under a lot of the traditional foundations of ethics. But you quote him extensively and say he's actually got an ethics, and it's an ethics about gratitude. You write that he, quote, experiences the pull to express gratitude, and it is gratitude for the very possibility of gratitude. So is that how you think of gratitude, as Wittgenstein does?
1: Wittgenstein, I think, was attuned to that miraculousness of the very existence of things, of the world, and his basic attunement to it was one of gratitude.
2: What I do love about Wittgenstein, though, I love this part of the book, is that appreciation of wonder, you know, not trying to make sense of the world exactly, or trying to explain why things are this or that way. It's just being content with the fact that there's a world to experience at all or in Wittgenstein's words, that there should be meaningfulness at all. Like, that's enough.
1: I agree with your account of Wittgenstein. I think that's exactly right. And it brings me back to, well, really, Socrates, where he says, you know, philosophy begins in wonder. And part of the wonder is not only being struck by the world, it is sort of bowled over by it, but that philosophy should begin there, which is I find that is wondrous too. I mean, that the sense of you're struck by the world in in all of its wonder, you are struck with wonder. And then you try to do something, which is think about it. You try to do philosophy. And what do you know? You can do it. <laughs> I mean, the world is there to think about. It doesn't just end with the experience of wonder, it begins with the experience of wonder. And that, I think, is wondrous. You know, how is it that these creatures are here? They're struck with wonder. And when they, you know, get struck with wonder, they themselves start to philosophize. And when they start to philosophize, actually, something pretty magnificent emerges, which is a connection of humans to the world, which we call philosophy, uh, that activity.
2: Yeah, look, it really is quite extraordinary that the world exists at all, that I was born at all. And, you know, the fact that I'll die is just a reminder that I was born in the first place and I didn't have to be. and, And everything that followed was a great, great privilege. But I also understand that telling someone that when they're standing over the corpse of their child or their spouse or their parent is probably not all that helpful. That's sort of an extreme case.
1: I'm with you. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, in some sense, I don't think anybody can tell anybody anything. <laughs> you know, I really don't.
2: <laughs> That's dark, man.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think it's dark. I don't think it's dark. I, I think we can have a conversation and things can emerge. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. I do think that there's teaching and I think there's learning. I think that there's philosophy as a conversation. I mean, when you and I, I did not met you, I mean, I didn't know whether we'd have a conversation or not, that this might have just not gotten anywhere. But if it wasn't going to get anywhere, I don't think it would have been cured by me having something particular to say. People have to be ready in their own life experience to connect and have a conversation. And I mean, again, Aristotle's always talking about community. You know, to have a conversation, you need to be in community. And that's why I think part of psychoanalytic technique is, that's what I meant by you can never tell anybody anything. You've got to wait for them. Yeah. And then you can join in a conversation. Yeah. But you know, I could tell a person you suffer from the Oedipus complex. Suppose it's true. I mean, what good would it do? And
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because I think gratitude is so easy in theory and it seems so obviously wise. Why do you think it's so hard for so many of us in practice, especially when so much is wrong with the world and so much is in a bad way? I mean, what do you say to someone who wants to be grateful, who is trying to be grateful in their life? Because everyone, almost everyone has something. About which to be grateful, but finds it extremely difficult to do for whatever reason.
1: Well, uh, you know, the fact is, I don't know. But I will say this I mean, I think it goes back to this thought of Melanie Klein's, which is partly to just to understand what it is that there's something in the early infant parent relationship when it's going well and when it's not being harmed or traumatized or whatever, the infant can recognize that the feeding—there's something more going on here than just feeding. The infant can recognize that this is coming with love, and there's something tremendously comforting about good, loving parenting experience of just feeding the infant that both sides are attuned to. You know, if all you're thinking about is feeding, you're just missing so much that's part of this world. I mean, I think Melanie Klein's view is just a shame if you aren't afforded that experience in life. And it's a shame if you, again, like strategies, hit upon strategies not to recognize that. Yeah. You know, some people will just feel if I were to recognize all that I should be grateful for, I'd just be too indebted or I'd be too jealous, I'd be too envious of, et cetera, of their goodness. So what do you say to somebody? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, again, what I love about Socrates and what I love about psychoanalysis is it's always starting with a particular person and a particular conversation and a particular set of problems. And can we meet here and move from there? That's whatever would it take to help somebody get attuned to legitimate occasions for gratitude. That's sort of, I don't know how to put it, the answer is that there isn't one single answer, but there are different interventions.
2: What do you mean by radical hope? You know, hope is something I personally have always struggled with. I mean, even today, when I get called a pessimist, I get a little defensive because part of me knows there's some truth in the accusation but also I think it bothers me because I'm trying to be more hopeful and more optimistic and being called a pessimist feels like I'm being chained to a version of myself. I'm trying to move beyond.
1: No, 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 You're, you, uh, you sound in good shape okay. to me. <laughs> Do I really? For, yeah, firstly, you can be a legitimate and really dedicated pessimist and be full of hope. These are not opposites. Optimism is the opposite of pessimism. I admire the honest pessimists who maintain hope. So there, I mean, that's what I think. Hopefulness is a kind of committed living towards the future that need not be at all optimistic. Hmm. I think that would make a lot of sense to me now. And that's true whether it's radical or unradical. But hopefulness is a kind of committed living into the future and hoping for the good, even if suspecting it's not going to
2: be that way. So I think you can be full of hope and a pessimist. But importantly, radical hope for you doesn't mean deluding yourself. No. It's more about accepting what can't be changed and just simply remaining open to what still can be.
1: Correct. And also, the radical nature that I wanted to get was it doesn't mean oomph. It's not added oomph to the hope. Not only do I hope, but I hope with a lot of oomph. But really, uh, there's a particular condition, which one example of it was about the Crow Indians I wrote about. And this is our human vulnerability, which is. It wasn't up to them that the form of life that had been available to them, in which they understood to be crow, was no longer livable. And that's not a psychological condition. It was a condition of history, that you just couldn't get on horses and ride anymore and go to war with the Sioux and hunt buffalo and whatever. It was all over. So they could say, well, I'd like to remain a crow. But the radical nature of this is it was no longer clear what it would be anymore to be a crow. And that's the radical nature of the hope. I want the crow to go forward in spite of the fact I don't yet know what that would mean now. Now, I feel we are threatened with that, about like, what would it any longer be to be American? What is this to be? What is our concept? As soon as you start to think about the very form of life in which you are embedded being fragile and have hopefulness towards that. That's what makes hope radical.
2: Okay. The book is Imagining the End, Mourning and the Ethical Life. I absolutely live for these kinds of conversations. So thank you so much for coming in today, Jonathan, to have it. It's been a pleasure. It's been a delight to meet
1: you. And I don't know, these are the kind of conversations I actually do believe in. And I thank you for your time.
2: Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Dostovska is our editor. Patrick Boyd is our engineer. Alex Overington wrote our theme music and A.M. Hall is the boss. So what do you think of this episode? Can gratitude actually lead us away from despair? Do any of those strategies Jonathan talked about feel practically useful to you, or is it too, I don't know, abstract? Does all of this make you want to read some Kierkegaard? Of course it does. Do it. Anyway, let us know drop us a line at, the gray area at vox.com. And if you heard something you liked in this conversation, please share it around and let your friends hear it or just leave a review. All that stuff helps out a lot. We appreciate it. Episodes drop Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.